This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. 50267 dollars That is the average starting salary for Praxis graduates. Their average age, 21. Most of them do not have a college degree. Many of them came straight out of high school. All of them wanted more than classrooms and studying and fretting over GPAs and graduating and shooting out resumes hoping one landed somewhere that they didn't absolutely hate. They chose Praxis to get into the real world and work with amazing, fast-growing startups and small businesses right now. Why wait? To learn by doing, to reflect and study and push yourself and have coaching and, and mentoring to improve on what you're doing and then to go back to doing it again, that back and forth process of real world engagement in a business setting and reflecting on it, self-guided curriculum. That's what Praxis is all about. In less than one year, graduating the program, starting at an average of $50,267. That's after a paid apprenticeship during the program. See, you get paid to apprentice while you're in the program with these businesses. And when you're done, you get hired on. That is a deal that no other institution can match. You you can't get that kind of exposure and that kind of net cost of zero experience that leads you to a fulfilling life and career that quickly anywhere else. Go to discoverpraxis.com and join. This week on the Isaac Morehouse Podcast, a conversation between Isaac and Aaron Watson. Aaron is the host of Going Deep with Aaron, a podcast interview series featuring deep discussions about entrepreneurship, sports, finance, comedy, and lifestyle design. Aaron has interviewed the likes of Kevin Kelly, Chris Guillebeau, and over 100 other interesting authors, entrepreneurs, and all-around amazing people. And there's a funny story behind this episode. Isaac went in thinking he was interviewing Aaron for this podcast. Aaron went in thinking he was interviewing Isaac for Going Deep. And so they decided to do a joint episode and have a wide-ranging discussion. Isaac and Aaron touch on the benefits of starting a podcast, life lessons from sports, the value of goals versus processes, and a deep dive into Snapchat, amongst many other topics. As always, links to everything discussed in this episode can be found in the show notes on IsaacMorehouse.com. Enjoy the episode. This is crazy, Isaac. We both thought that we were going to be interviewing the other because we both have our own podcasts. So I guess I have to start off by asking, what was the inspiration for you launching your podcast? You know, it was a friend of mine, uh, a guy named Albert Liu, and he has a podcast. Actually, I think he has two of them now. It's sort of one of those things that you, once you start, it's kind of addictive. Um <laughs> And he brought me on a couple times, and I really had a good time. And he said, "Hey, you should start a podcast." And I and I had been blogging every day for a couple of years, um, and I really enjoyed that. 
And I just thought, ah, I don't know. I don't, yeah, it just it, to me, the biggest thing was it just sounds like a lot of technical work. Blogging is simple. I go to WordPress, I type it in. I don't need to know HTML anymore, even though once upon a time I used to know, need to know a little bit. It, it's just really easy. The barrier to entry was so low. And he's like, just try it, just try it, you know, just try a couple episodes. And I kind of have like a why not approach to life. Like if, it, if there's something doesn't sound awful and if it sounds at all intriguing, like why not? Why not try it? So I tried it and I actually fell in love with it. And I'm still very low, you know, low fi in terms of my technology and, you know, production values and all that stuff. But I have absolutely loved it. So now I got to flip it on you because I this was one of the things I wanted to ask you. What got you into podcasting? So the truth is, I've been listening to podcasts since 2008, 2009. Wow, you're an early adopter. Uh, I was a very late adopter. Yeah, and it was one of those things where I, you know, I found one show that I really liked and then ended up adding a couple more. And I'd say like, I, it was my last year of college, and we'll get into that whole uh, nut that you're cracking with Praxis, but my last year of college, basically, I would say that the, the primary education that I was getting was on my walks to and from class, because I had my library, my library of different podcast hosts who were teaching me about entrepreneurship or business or marketing or finance or whatever it may be. And then I you know, would sit down in class and then continue my education on the walk back. So that's uh, eventually kind of got to the point where I was listening to these hosts and they were saying, you know, they were asking certain questions like, oh man, I really wish they would have asked this because that's what I really want to know. And I feel like that's really what someone in, else in my situation, my peers who are just entering the workforce would want to know, would want to unpack. So what, what uh, you, eventually... What, well, two questions. One, what podcast were you listening to? But two, how were you listening to them? Because it, there was a while where it wasn't, and it still isn't super easy were you using the, did, did the iPhone have an app for that yet? Or what were you using to listen? Yeah, it was the iPhone app. Um, I've been on the iPhone since I think like the three or the four. And it was a slow and steady process of just uncovering other podcasts predominantly within their own ecosystem. So some guest would come on, I think for, for a while I was on the Joe Rogan kick really hard yeah. and, and someone would come on and be like, oh, I have a podcast. They'd be like, well, you were actually like a really entertaining guest. I'm going to go see what you're all about. And it was a lot of kind of testing and experimenting. The other one that I got really turned on to was the Tropical MBA. Um, mm -hmm. And that was just, I mean, in terms of an education on kind of modern, the, the modern state of business and not corporate culture and, and really like building your own individual, whether it's a lifestyle business or a personal brand or whatever it may be, was the, the best education I got there. But similarly, they'd have guests on and, you know, I want to keep learning. I want to find the other people in this ecosystem because the biggest challenge for me, whether it's educating myself through YouTube or podcasts or whatever media I decide, is finding the circle of influences for the person that really resonates with me. So mm -hmm. I've gone on a recent kick, I'd say like earlier this year where I was consuming a lot of Gary Vaynerchuk content and really trying to learn from him. But where I've struggled is, so who's influencing him or who is in that same sphere that I can kind of get a more well-rounded view mm -hmm. of the stuff I'm learning? That's one of the most exciting things about podcasting is that sort of two things. One is as a host, you get to have conversations you otherwise couldn't have. Even even with people you already know, it's not like you couldn't go have a beer. Like you and I have met over email and such. We have mutual acquaintances. We could go have a beer, but it's unlikely 
that, and we live in different cities, that that's gonna happen. And it's unlikely that if I said, hey, Aaron, let's just do a phone call for an hour and talk to each other, both of us are gonna have a hard time justifying that. But with a podcast, it gives you this context and people will say, yes, they like to be interviewed. So you get to learn from people. But the other thing that's cool is you sort of create this footprint of what kind of people and ideas are in your orbit and are interesting and, and are, you know, sort of turn you on. And so if you go and look at your podcast or my podcast, and I looked and I think we both have roughly a hundred ish episodes in that range that have gone out. And if you look at mm-hmm. those and you start to see all the names on there, you'll start to, it's kind of a really cool like bibliography. Okay. These are some people that Aaron's really interested in and the people that come on your show, they probably talk about books and authors that have influenced them. And you sort of get these concentric circles of people that are likely to have interesting stuff to say. And, and it's just, it's a really cool way to kind of get new um, ideas and be exposed to new thinkers. Absolutely. Could not agree more. And the other concentric circle that we, we also have to touch on are the listeners and the people who kind of get pulled in that way. I know that Hannah Phillips was a listener of this show and she actually listened to episode 66 of mine with, with your buddy Zach Slayback and he was talking about Praxis and then she actually does photography at the semi-professional Ultimate Frisbee games that I play in and she stopped me after the game and said, Aaron, I listened to that interview with Zach and I've applied to be a part of Praxis and then I think like the next week she said, I found out that I'm going to be participating later this summer. We need to send just, you a commission of some kind. <laughs> I don't, I'm, not, I'm not asking for a commission, anything, but it's just exciting to see that not only are you having these conversations and discovering new content and new influencers that I can learn from, but also that there's these people in the community who are also finding the connections that you're facilitating that is is the best feeling of all. Yeah, it, it really is. And there's something that the age of the internet, the digital world enables us to do that was incredibly difficult for all the rest of human history, which is create strong networks and social bonds, uh, professional bonds around things that we choose, not just the happenstance of geography. You know, I happen to live close enough to these, you know, X number of people and the ones that we, you know, share interest and values. um, Great, we'll become close, but it's kind of random. You know, there could be people in other parts of the country. You're just separated by geography you don't know. Now that geography is such a minor factor with the ability to do things like, you know, Skype and things that we're doing now, other things, you, you're kind of able to signal your interests and create these social bonds around them. And I was just realized, I think yesterday, you are in a Facebook group that I'm in around uh, Taylor Pearson's The End of Jobs book, right? Yeah, I've I, actually interviewed him on, on my show okay, as well. Okay, so, yeah. so have I. So I somebody connected me and said, hey, this is a cool book. And I read it and I was like, I like this guy. I want to bring him on the show. And we did an interview. He's a really nice guy. And I didn't have any other context to know him. And I joined his Facebook group. And I've been on it for a while. And I just noticed that you posted something. I'm like, oh, that's that's Aaron. Zach knows him. And I'm going to interview him on my podcast. Cool. We're kind of part of this thing already. Like, there's just this small world feel that even though the world is so wide and you can connect to anyone, there's something cool about being reminded of how small it is in some ways as well. I could not agree more. And to even bring things full circle here, the Tropical MBA podcast, Taylor was 
one of their first hires. So it's these two guys who kind of just go back and forth and occasionally they have guests and they're, they're talking about their uh, their businesses, but Taylor was the guy who's putting together their show notes and editing and then they helped him launch his book when the time came and, and created a bunch of connections that kind of got that thing off the ground and made it an Amazon bestseller. So it's just so so crazy how that stuff works. Okay, Aaron, um, I, gotta, I wanna try to ask you about something totally unrelated to this. Hit me. Okay, so sports. In your bio and your podcast, it said that's sports is one of the things you talk about. I know that you are a two-time national champion at Ultimate Frisbee, which sounds really cool. Um, I want to ask you, so have you read Zero to One by Peter Thiel? It's on my list. I have not gotten okay, to that, it Okay, that's fine. That's fine. But there, there's something in there, and there's something to this, and a lot of stuff on education about – Ways in which the idea of competition is sort of warped or overly valued, perhaps, um, where everything is is viewed as this sort of zero sum game. You've got to, you know, get the better credential than your, you know, than your peers, and you've got to, you know, only one person will win at this thing. And in most of the marketplace and in most of life, that's actually not the way it works. And very early on, and there's some studies with children and learning in this regard too. Very early on, if you're a complete novice at something, a high level of competition of very clear winners and losers um, makes it harder to learn. Now, once you have mastery, you get better with competition. Uh, you, it actually spurs you on to be better. But before you have mastery, during the sort of exploratory phase, it's really hard. And so there are a lot of people that criticize like organized sports and the, you know, the, the playing field on sports. Everything's a zero-sum game and the market isn't like that. It's a win-win situation. Um, I'm curious. I'm a big fan of sports. Uh, I love to play them. I love to watch them. I'm a fan. I don't feel like there's a, a conflict, but I'm curious if you have ever sort of encountered that idea that sports cultivates this zero-sum competitive mindset that's antithetical to kind of building a productive life and succeeding in the market, and how do you address that? Well, that's a, uh, that's a complicated one to unpack. Um, I, I would say that my experiences have been – the lesson that I've actually taken away is that when you receive a loss, when you get knocked down, when you do experience the hyper-competitive spots, I've learned a lot both about how different people rationalize the results of those competitions, but also some of the underlying realities of what caused them. So, so for example, um, when I was in ninth grade, I'm sorry, yeah, when I was in eighth grade, I was uh, one of the captains of my soccer team. And when I tried out for the junior varsity team, I was cut from the team. I didn't get in any way significantly worse or better. The pool of people that were potentially joining the team did not change drastically. What that ultimately was, was a political um, situation <laughs> where there were some, some parents who were influencing the way that cuts were made. This is something that I found out way, way later down the fact that, you know, my parents basically said, you know, you, we didn't really want to have that conversation with you at that point in time. Because that was, I mean, honestly, from like an emotional standpoint, as devastating an experience as I've had, like laying on the ground crying, not wanting to like go out and engage in any sort of social activity with any other people for a couple of days, which is just the case when you're younger, those things hit yeah. you a lot harder. But what I would say that that experience did was given some space and some time, understanding that just because I am probably qualified to be in that position and probably should have made that team does not mean that I am 
going to be given it. It's not, it's not like I can just expect that to happen. And even if I do work really hard, so one of the, one of the things in that trial process was juggling the ball. So just keeping the ball in the air with your feet and the kind of cutoff that they said for proficiency was 25. You had to be able to keep it up in the air, 25 touches. And I could not do that at the beginning of the summer. And I said, that's like the one thing that is going to be the biggest black mark for me. So I practiced all summer. Every day I went out in the street and did it and did it until by tryout time, I made it to 25. And that was like the kind of the source of my confidence. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to make it. And then to get cut like that, your first thought is, well, that all that practicing was a waste. All that effort was a waste. And ultimately, I realized that, all right, if I want to go build a skill in a certain area, I can do that. If you had asked me at the beginning of the summer, can you keep the ball up in the air 25 times? Absolutely not. I couldn't even get close to it. I probably could struggle to get 10. But understanding that was the skill that I've taken with me and has probably been the most applicable in the other things that I've done. So as you said, the podcasting is this huge technical hurdle. How do I do this? How do I produce this? This is much more complicated than just writing something on a blog. There was an underlying confidence from actually getting knocked down, not from a win, that I still was able to take away and say, hey, I know I can learn this if I spend enough time with it. I'm going to allocate the time to make it happen. I'm going to find multiple sources. I'm going to experiment. I'm going to accept the fact that the first, second, third, 10th, 15th time I do this, it's not going to be great. But now that I'm in over 100 episodes, I can say that I'm producing a podcast of relatively high quality. I can, I've built these skills that at some point down the road will translate to a beneficial outcome. And I don't necessarily know exactly what that's going to be. The same way I defined that outcome as making the team is the success and not making the team is not a success. It's no longer such a outcome-oriented final decision type of judgment. It's much more of a process. Are things moving in the right direction? Are my skills improving? Is my network growing? So on and so forth. I hope that answers the question. I think I kind of went on a little bit of a tangent. No, there, that's, but... that was a great tangent. Yeah, in in some ways, so maybe maybe sports isn't a zero sum game. Even if the in a given game, one team wins and one team loses, and if you consider winning that particular game, you know, a all or nothing uh, benefit or no benefit, then sure, you could call that zero sum. But from the standpoint of the individual participants. You gain something even if you lose. And if you didn't, you wouldn't play. You wouldn't play sports if you only enjoyed it, if you only got something out of it for winning because no team wins 100% of the time. And that I like that process versus outcome language you use. It reminds me of a – I think it's a Scott Adams blog post, the creator of Dilbert. And he kind of talks about like goals – are stupid. And, you know, I'm not like uh, um, really diehard in one direction or the other. I think goals can be useful. They can be distracting, but I'm not very big on really long-term goals as much as on processes. You mentioned podcasting. For me, it started with blogging every day. I didn't have a goal like I want to write a book or I want to be a great writer or I want to have X number of views, right? I just knew that I wanted to make myself be the kind of person who was capable of making myself show up every day. And when I just followed the process, I created a process that my I theorized was going to make me more like the person I want to be. And I committed to the process. And then I had all kinds of outcomes that were beneficial, but they were not outcomes I would have been able to predict. So, you know, your outcome that you were going after was making the team, 
but you ended up with a lot of other outcomes that you wouldn't have been able to predict because you committed to that process of practice. So there's, you know, this, this idea that it's purely zero sum, um, I think is, I think it's false. It's the same with, you know, starting companies or whatever, even if the company fails, you didn't gain nothing in the process. It's not like you fail and you can never do anything else with the rest of your life. So that's, that's really important. That's a good, that was a good tangent. I liked it. Yeah. And I think that there's also some degree of ignorance or arrogance that contributes to people thinking that they can really firmly even predict where things are going. The future is just so unknowable. My my kind of background is in looking at like economics and reading finance blogs. And a lot of the best investors, best financial analysts kind of acknowledge there's a there's so much that you don't know. You don't know what the market's going to do tomorrow. You don't know where it's going to be in 181 days. But having a process, having a system that you trust based on principles that's well-reasoned and researched is going to get you where you want to get to eventually. And it's following those consistently as opposed to making one declaration, I'm going to get my investment account to this by this date is just completely pointless. So it's funny how those type of principles can be extrapolated into all sorts of different subjects. How do you prepare for podcast episodes? It's different person to person. So I initially, when I started, my very lofty goal was every single person who comes on, I'm going to have read at least one entire book of theirs. (laughs) And then I realized that I am a single human who also has outside relationships, wants to be in shape, and uh, just basically has other obligations outside of sitting and reading. So I definitely do a ton of research uh, into their website if they have like a sample of the book or some of the people I've already read their book and I'm trying to hunt them down. Uh, but get, get a feel for what they're trying to communicate to the world. They have a business, kind of the, the mechanism of how their business works. But I also basically pump, pump the brakes on trying to get too much of an advanced understanding of what they do because the assumption I try to bring, and, and this isn't in any way to belittle the audience, but I try to you know ask the questions that are stupid that that would be or that are kind of obvious because I don't want to assume that they know too much or understand too much if I bring on so for example uh, a couple episodes ago, I brought on a guy named Matt Miller and he has a big vending franchise he uh, sets up vending machines with stickers in them and it's, it's like almost like a, a form of passive income but it's not digital which is which is kind of cool I really just tried to understand a very one-on-one level what did it take to start this? Like, how do you teach other people to do this? What were your responsibilities? How does it work now? Because those type of frameworks are not given to us in other educational settings. They're having an actual practitioner lay it all out as clearly as possible and helping them keep it 101 because they're you know, they've been doing it for however many years, they have these this language and this jargon that they can say one word and it means has a hugely deep well of meaning attached to it, but to someone else, they don't even know what that word means. So just really trying to break that down and make it digestible so that people have these frameworks that then they can apply to whatever they're pursuing. What What are your, what makes an episode like really fun to do? Because I don't know if, if you're like me, so sometimes I do an episode and, I, and this doesn't seem to have a correlation to the episodes that listeners like the most, but 
sometimes I do one and it's like work. It's like really hard to kind of get into the groove and others are so easy. They're just like a blast. I could keep going for hours and I haven't always been able to kind of figure out what are the commonalities, but do you have anything that, that makes you say, okay, this is a great episode. Anything about the type of guest or the type of mindset you bring into it or anything like that? So, th- so there's a diff- couple different ways that people end up coming on the show. There's the people that I'm kind of connected to in some way or another, like we met at one of the networking groups I'm a part of, or, you know, just whatever it may be, there's some somehow they're in your network. And those are always great, because you already know the person. And it's more of a chance, like, I'm just want to highlight my friend or like, I kind of already know some context. So I can actually know this really good story that you have, and I can just pull it out of you. Uh, then there's the people that I kind of get introduced to or, or reach out to me or like so that Matt Miller guy, he is on a lot of podcasts and actually has a PR person who reaches out to shows and says, hey, you should have Matt on. And then I did my little bit of research to see like, is this guy legit? Does it seem like he is a decent <laughs> That's guest? That's always hard I, when someone comes to you and says, I want to come on your show. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, I generally listen to an episode or two before I say yes to see if they, they have any ability. But what what's your process when they come to you? Yeah, it's, it's tough because often what I'll get is a third party making an introduction and saying, okay, so this is what happened with you and I. Uh, Zach said, hey, you need to meet Aaron Watson. You should have him on your podcast. Now, I know Zach really well and I trust him, so it's not – that awkward or it's not like, oh, Zach, why did you do this to me? But sometimes if it's someone I don't know really well and they say, hey, Isaac, I want you to meet X, you should have them on your podcast. Now, they have basically set me up to look like mm-hmm. a jerk if I say <laughs> if I say no, which again, I'm not like mad or anything, but it can be tough. So I'll, I'll go, you know, look up the person, look. And I always, the, the guiding principle I have on my podcast, just because I don't know any other principle to have, it feels like anything else would be contrived and it would be too hard to be consistent, is, is this person fascinating to me? Is this interesting to me? I approach my okay. podcast very selfishly. Like I'm doing this for me. I'm doing it for my own entertainment. If it ever stops being enjoyable, I'm going to stop doing it because I don't ever like to be chained to things that I hate. That's my mantra. Don't do stuff you hate. And so I always try to make it enjoyable for me. So I look them up and often a lot of people are like, yeah, that wouldn't be unenjoyable. Um, and there's probably something interesting I would get out of it. But compared to the person that I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is a cool person I want to talk to. Like when Zach introduced me to you, I looked at your podcast. I looked at your website. I looked at the circles you run in. And I was like, oh, this is the kind of person who's living the kind of life that I find interesting. This is cool. No brainer. But sometimes I get yeah, that. And I don't I just I don't know what to do. I kind of just say, all right, I'll put you in the queue. <laughs> I don't do anything. <laughs> yeah, I. I do the same thing. It's actually so funny what you said there is uh, it wouldn't be unenjoyable. Like just imagine trying to pitch anyone else on that premise. Like if someone was trying to get you to go go to a concert or like watch a movie, like, well, it wouldn't be unenjoyable. <laughs> like, like who would say yes to that? But uh, the yeah, that same idea that. Oh, my God. I just had a brain fire. What was I going to say? Um, it's, it's OK. I, I want to throw one, one other thing in there it. about about podcasting when I interview people and you can, maybe this will help you think about what you're going to say. Um, I have tried recently and and I think I've gotten better at interviewing. I hope I have, but I have tried to, to make my sole focus because of this. I found that this makes it more interesting and enjoyable for me. And that's always my goal. I want to have a good time with it. So I've found to try to make my focus with whatever guests I have. I want to make this the most enjoyable easy interview they've ever had. I want them to have fun. And so I try to think of questions that people want to be asked. 
and maybe they don't consciously know, like most people aren't consciously going around saying, man, I can't wait till someone asks me this question in a public forum. But I think people have sort of subconsciously. And so I try to think about myself. I try to put myself in someone's shoes. What are the questions that they probably don't get a lot? And some of the questions are ones that they do get a lot that they love answering. But what are the questions that they love answering or that are really enjoyable that maybe they don't get a lot that are a little bit, a little bit unique? And so I always I always want my guests to come away feeling like I do. I want both of us to come away feeling like that was really fun. It was worth my time for the enjoyment alone, you know? I, I could not agree more. And uh, I, I, an example of that for me was I had a guy on. And I think one of the easiest tropes that an interviewer can fall into is when they find an author to come on their show. Uh, the real basic, well, why'd you write the book? How long did it take? What was the inspiration? And like not actually get into the weeds of their ideas because that's what that's what someone who puts a book together is. They're putting really like powerful ideas, at least to them, onto pages into the written text and they want this to be shared with other people. They want these ideas to be shared. They don't care that it's a physical book or, or how long, how many pages it was or something like that. And I, I had a guy on and he even said at the end of the interview, he said, you know, I do hundreds of these because he's promoting his book. He's out there hustling. He goes, I get the same friggin' questions every single time. And I was just so happy that you didn't give me the same questions. And it, that was like, not only a learning experience for me, but a, a bit of an inspiration where you could see that that like, basically, like you said, like lighten his day a little bit, because a lot of these people are on these tours where they're just trying to get their name out there and, and promote the, the work that they've put together. And you allow them to be a more attractive version of themselves when you make it more natural and don't just ask the same five questions they've heard. Yeah. It, well, that can be hard too, because it can be a double edged sword if you think, oh, Okay, well, so the trick is asking unique questions. And then all of a sudden you can find yourself just like coming up with stupid like, you know, why why are tennis balls fuzzy or just like random, you know, try, <laughs> almost trying to be cutesy or like trying too hard to be the different interviewer, uh, which I don't think works. It's it's It can be tough, but I, I, I recently as well had a similar experience where it was probably the, probably the best interview I've done. Uh, with a guy who's got his own podcast, he's, he's got a huge following, much, much larger than mine. He's written several books. And he told me afterwards that was his favorite interview. And I was so excited by that. And I think the one thing I did in that interview was I kind of allowed him to talk about struggles and weaknesses in a non-threatening way. You know, we sort of asked about his childhood. And I said, like, were you bookish as a child? And was it hard for you? And he said, yes, I was. And I said, was that hard for you? Did you get picked on? And he said, yeah. And then we kind of got into this whole thing about like, grudges and how he learned to deal with haters when his first book came out and the criticisms and how that tied back to like his anger that people made fun of him in middle school for being bookish. And it was just really interesting to kind of tease out some of those things. So I'm always trying to ask myself, how can I, you know, how can I do more of that? Okay. Yeah, okay. And, and, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. And, and you can get two off message there potentially if you're asking obscure questions and then it's not related to why they're there and what they're promoting. You, 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 it's, it's just, I totally agree. It's that narrow path that you have to stay on, but go ahead. Okay. So speaking of questions that are hopefully interesting, and this is a totally selfish question because I have really been trying to not be an old fuddy duddy who gets passed up by new technologies that kids these days are using. So I'm on your website and I love this format, by the way, where you have kind of your your bio, your about me and the projects you're doing, which are sort of the enduring, you know, this is who I am. But then you have this page called now, 
which is sort of this is who I am right now. These are the projects that I'm currently working on, which I, I really like. I like that sort of juxtaposition. But on the now page, it says uh, that you snap daily. And I hovered over the link to make sure that meant Snapchat because I wasn't <laughs> entirely sure. And it does. I have tried Snapchat. I don't get it. Can you give me the elevator pitch for personally, why and how is Snapchat valuable to you? How does it add value to your life? So, oh, elevator pitch. Okay. So, so fundamentally to me, Snapchat delivers a level of authenticity that is not, that I don't find in the most of the other social networks. So for example, Instagram, I literally couldn't even count how many filters they have. Like that, that to me is not terribly authentic. And it's a lot of like this shot that we hiked 10 miles to go take so that we could, you know, be the most beautiful picture that you saw on Instagram today. Facebook is, I mean, to me, I just have a huge problem with Facebook being this platform where they're just trying to take over YouTube's hegemony as a digital video spot, but they're uh, promoting these videos. They're very highly produced. It's it's basically like a viral video slash commercial um, like content marketing platform, essentially. Twitter, I think Twitter is very authentic. I just think it's a little noisy and hard to really interact one to one on. It's very like public forum. It's got a high learning curve too. Like there's a, it's almost like a different language with all the ats and replies and hashtags and the way that you, you can't usually see an entire conversation at once. It's it's very inside baseball for until you get used to it. But I, I would argue Snapchat is basically in the same boat. Okay, maybe that's why I'm having it, such a hard time. <laughs> Yeah, because there's like really 101 features are, are pretty self-explanatory. But like, so I, so for example, I have my own geo filters. And what a geo filter is, uh, is an advertising product that Snapchat put together where you can, for people who are in a designated area at a designated time and date, they can add a certain image to their snaps. Now that sounds super obscure and i'm sure that anyone who hasn't been on the platform before is like what are you talking about <laughs> I, I i can hear them thinking that in their minds right that's now. just me so <laughs> so why is that applicable let's say i'm at a pittsburgh thunderbirds uh semi-professional ultimate frisbee game because that's who i play for and that's a, a helpful self-promotional opportunity i can i can go to the snapchat website buy their advertising product and draw on Google Maps uh, a big fence around the stadium that we play at. And I can set the time for Saturday night from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. And from 6 to 10, 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. that night, someone who's taking a picture of themselves or the game or their friends or the food they're eating at the Thunderbirds game, after they take their picture, there's there's three filters to change the color and then you can add the time or the speed you're going or the temperature and then at the very end there's these special images uh so like right now i have one at the bottom that says pittsburgh on it if if you're in baltimore there's one that says baltimore on it uh maybe there's a promotional one like right now there's one with burger king and cheetos uh, that they've bought that's kind of across the entire platform, probably much more expensive. But for me, I paid $5 for that. And anyone there can use the Aaron Watson geo filter that says disc is life. Disc is life is a play on ball is life. 
that is um, basically, basically just saying like this sport means a lot yeah, to me. Yeah. And it helps them express their message at a kind of higher resonance, a higher frequency. It, it creates it adds sort of a sense of that. community to those who are in that spot at that time. Precisely. And that's exactly the type of story that I want to attach myself to. I am, for, for a lot of intents and purposes, the Frisbee guy in my circles, outside of my team and my fellow, uh, you know, Frisbee Instead fanatics. of circles, do you call it your discs? <laughs> yeah, that's that, such yeah, a yeah, bad that, joke. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I am the Frisbee guy, though. So like when I roll into the Pittsburgh entrepreneurial community, one of the things I'm known for, in addition to being a podcast junkie, is the Frisbee guy. And so I hesitate to get too far into that like personal branding and self-identifying kind of language. But when you're using it as an, as an, basically a narrative for your story, sharing your experiences, whether it's, I went to this amazing vacation. So here's another example. I have my story on Snapchat, which is valid for 24 hours. And, and that's anyone who follows you can see that. You're not directly sending it to one person. You're sharing it with anyone who follows you, right? Precisely. Okay. So anyone who's following me can check out my story. And in early April, I spent two weeks in Asia, which was an amazing, life-changing experience. But I was in uh, Tokyo and Kyoto, Japan. I was in Seoul, South Korea. I was in Hong Kong and I was in Macau. And throughout this experience, I'm snapping this street market where it's just open air meets. And, and these are all like seafood. really short videos or else photos, right? videos of less than 10 seconds or pictures that are you can go back and watch again for the, for that 24 hour window but they're just you look at it for 3 seconds and then it disappears itself okay and there's this kind of impermanence that someone who's used to Facebook and Instagram finds frustrating or confusing yeah. like what's the value of having something that disappears like that but it's much more aligned with the human experience when you're not interacting with this social and media. So it's more similar like to, the, yeah, to like the offline experience where if you and some friends are, you know, looking at a waterfall or watching something funny unfold before you, you just have it in that moment and then it's gone. It's a memory. And it's almost in some ways it's almost better because retelling the story over and over, you can, you can sort of, you know, blow it up, make it more mythical. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's different from, documenting things on Facebook or, or Twitter or Instagram where you take a fleeting experience that leaves an impression on who you are, um, but like the actual details of it, you know, tend to get lost. And, and then all of a sudden you transfer it into something that's carved in stone and that's permanent. It's interesting. Neither neither one is is superior to the other, but that, but I can okay. Now I'm starting to see the value of these of the non permanence of it by by emulating offline experience in a closer way. You're, yeah, let's you're, let's take it back to the in. I like this. Let's take it back to the highlight the sports um, analogy that we had before. So, I know sports centers kind of on the decline right now. It's it's viewership and just for ESPN is way down, that, but I didn't know that. I'm not surprised. Yeah, uh, just just television kind of getting bites taken out of it. But um, one of the like quintessential experiences for me, I'd say from like 16 through, I don't know, 22 maybe was watching the highlights on sports center at night yeah the top 10 wow. the best plays from yesterday and if you think about it like after you watch the top 10 if someone asked you three days later like what was the top 10 like from from three days ago 
maybe you could remember like one play that really stood out. But that doesn't mean that you didn't enjoy the experience of consuming those highlights. Or it's like live sports itself. It's one of the few televised forms of entertainment that, yeah, you can record it on DVR and watch it later, but it feels very weird to do that. We, we all kind of like, you know, TV series now, everybody watches them, binge watches them later after the fact. Nobody's, hardly anybody's watching them when they come out. But live sports is one of the few things that maintains that we all share this experience together in the moment. You might watch replays later, but nothing can recapture the feeling of what you experienced when you watched it live together. Absolutely. And so and so what you're saying with the live experience, that's Periscope, Facebook Live. I guess Meerkat's kind of fallen off as well, but that's like live stream. This is happening right now. Tune in. Holy crap. Snapchat is that highlight right after the fact with that little extra flair. So I always loved uh, like when uh, uh, what's Scott Stewart, I think, would, would come on and like as the highlights going on, he's going like, blah, or like, like something like <laughs> yeah. just adding that little bit of sizzle and personality to it. That is Snapchat. This is the highlight uh. of what happened to me today. Um, like, so I'm going to do one. I'm actually going to do one right now as we're talking and just take a really quick video. I am recording this podcast with Isaac Morehouse. <laughs> it is fire. And then I can add a little geo filter to that after the fact, post it to my story. And people will know that's happening right now. Boom goes and, the dynamite, you know? <laughs> and maybe a little interest is peaked so that when the Isaac Morehouse it, uh, interview actually comes out on the podcast, they'll be extra primed to hop on that. Well, okay, but so it's that little bit of flavor of the day. Super stupid technical question for someone who obviously I don't use it very much. So when you said you can set something to be uh, on your story, it disappears after 24 hours. Is that 24 hours after you post it, then nobody can see it? Or if I just add you for the first time, can I view it? And then after I view it, it disappears 24 hours after I view it for me. Do you know what I'm saying? It's 24 hours from the time of posting, it's available. Period. So if, so, so so if I, someone- So I will not be able to see any of the things you posted when you were in Asia. It's too late for me. It's too late now. So, ah, this so is, you, you, so, you feed on the FOMO, on the fear of missing it, out. It, it certainly feeds on the FOMO. And they, uh, the, like the digital marketers, they talk about the engagement rates on different platforms and Facebook and Twitter. I think they're like one or 2% engagement. Snapchat is in the double digits, which is absurd for- basically any marketing metric. Um, and what they'll, what they're saying is it is feeding on that FOMO where if I don't check Isaac's story today, I'm going to miss whatever was going on. So like, like I know for me from a bit, just a, a real analysis of my personal behavior, I have a couple accounts that I won't miss because they're, they've proven over the course of, now not every story they post is awesome. There's plenty of stuff you like, like I'm tapping through this. This is, you know, not interesting. Sorry, I waste my time there. But it's that the, the the casino effect where you don't know when the next big payoff is yeah, coming yeah. that keeps you coming and, and suckling at that teat. And then when you get that crazy experience, like oh my god, they are backstage with who's who's one of your favorite musical artists, Isaac? Uh, well, contemporary. I don't know. I like the band Muse. They're good. Okay. John is backstage with the muse right now and talking with them. Oh my gosh, like it's so cool to get to see that because that's not something you usually get to see or he like asks them some question or maybe I'm just whatever told, it may be. But that, like that doesn't appeal that much to me. Anything that has a sense of urgency, I always feel kind of pressured and I always <laughs> I always kind of want to say like, yeah, just, let me let me consume it on my own time. Like I don't want to have to do it right now. But 
But that's there are instances where that's not true. Like I mentioned, live sports. You know, I always want to know. Okay, so I don't I don't want to spend all this time like just incessantly on Snapchat. But but it ties into some <laughs> sure. interesting stuff about the consumption and production of ideas. I think for a long time, consumption of information or ideas was a very very separate act from production. So you know, you write a book. It's a very different act from reading a book, for example. Social media has made these things much more tied together, but they're still kind of separate. So I've noticed, for example, one thing interesting that's happened to me over the years, I find Facebook tremendously valuable personally and professionally, but the, it, it's way more valuable in production for me or distribution. So if I create a new blog post or a new uh, podcast episode, it's gonna get a ton of action when I post it to Facebook. Um, it's a great way to share my ideas that I've produced. But the consumption on Facebook, when I go look at my newsfeed, it's less and less valuable to me. It's gotten lower and lower valuable. The, the pages that I subscribe to don't even show up anymore unless they advertise. Whereas Twitter, I still haven't figured out how to get a lot out of it in terms of like producing things and like using it as a, as a promotional platform to say, hey, check out my new whatever. Much less action than Facebook. But for consumption, my Twitter feed, and this is because it's not the mutual with Facebook, uh, you know, you both accept each other as friends, although there is a, there is a follow function. But anyway, the, the Twitter feed, I find much more valuable if I want to go consume ideas. So, so this brings me to Snapchat. What are your sort of production and consumption habits there? So you mentioned sort of from the production side, you, you go on there pretty much every day and post something of you, you know, your trip to Asia, whatever else on my stories. Do you also do a lot of Snapchatting individually to friends like, hey, check this out, like as a replacement for text messaging? And then on the consumption side, are you mostly just consuming your sort of you go through your main feed and you look at the stories of people you follow or are you consuming, again, direct messages from people that, that are friends with you? I'm drooling because I love this question. I'm going to try to be <laughs> answer it uh, fully for you there. So the number one thing that you hit on the middle, uh, the sleeping giant of Snapchat that people really don't appreciate, every, a lot of people focus on the stories, is one-to-one -one messaging is that's where I do it now. Like I would say it was basically exclusively iMessages because I've got the iPhone. I would say now it's like 50-50 Snapchat and uh, iMessages, like Facebook Messenger, almost never. Uh, I hate it when people message me on Facebook Messenger. Cause yeah, like LinkedIn messages. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Twitter, like Twitter's, you know, you can, it's more public for me. So I understand when people do that. It's like they're giving someone a shout yeah, out that's, that's different. directed no, nobody at Nobody direct messages on Twitter. Uh, but yeah, not, not so much uh, in the, in the DM space there. So huge one-to-one -one interaction uh, for my production. I wouldn't say maybe that's not perfectly accurate on the now, now, now page. That's probably like five or six days a week. And I feel a responsibility to do something unique and compelling uh, in some way or another. What, it's basically just telling some sort of story. Does that stress you out or do I you do. like that feeling of responsibility? I like it because to me, the, the same way you talked earlier about blogging daily, yeah. um, to me it's just a form of regular creative expression. And it's also an area where I can be sillier. That's kind of, the, the Snapchat is still... Uh, or the, the demographics of the platform is still younger. Uh, there is that ephemeral nature where, where it is disappearing after a while. So you're more comfortable being silly. So you don't feel and like, like this has to be your magnum opus of creative expression. <laughs> Ex exactly. And, and yeah, there's less of that worry. Like I, I've, 
have no delusions of being like a professional or famous comedian, but you see how they get like just raked through the coals when they say like a joke isn't delivered the right way and it offends someone in the PC police. And not that I, that's really my taste in my, in my personal comedy, but if something doesn't land, there's not even going to be a record of it really in 24 hours or one-to-one. It's literally just a one-time thing. So you can be sillier and it, it feels a little bit more free. Whereas on any of those other platforms, anything I post, I'm like, like, like even a tweet, this is so silly, 140 words, even a tweet I'm double, triple checking the spelling, the uh, like way I've worded it because I know that I'm going to forget that I wrote this and someone's going to go back there in eight <laughs> months and, and decide to be offended. So there, there is that extra consideration where the Snapchat, like to me, and, and you know, maybe this is going to change. Maybe we're like get, digging too deep of a hole here in terms of where technology where it may be going, but it still feels like it did like when I was in my dorm or like my old house in Oakland where I could just be silly and like say something ridiculous. And if it didn't work, it was just one of the millions upon billions of jokes that haven't landed and weren't recorded and saved for perpetuity. This is why I have tremendous respect, even though I don't fully understand it and haven't found it valuable for myself yet for a platform like Snapchat, it's purely theoretical. It's because I've seen a pattern, a very obvious pattern throughout all of history, that the technologies that become the most disruptive, they almost always start as either playthings, just silly, you know, baubles or whatever, and or um, sort of uh, promoting vices or sort of, you know, inappropriate things. So whatever, you know, whatever the, the famous story of like the pornography industry used VHS and that's why it won out over beta or, uh, you know, <laughs> Snapchat, you know, sort of originally, at least from my understanding of it was like, oh, this is what you use to send inappropriate pictures to people because then no one will remember it. And, and almost like the sillier and easier to overlook it starts out. If it sticks around long enough, the more you start to think, there's something in this because things that sort of start with really lofty goals, like this is an enterprise solution for me. I don't know. It's, it's harder to tell which ones are going to make an impact. But something something that starts out as like, I don't understand why you would want to, you know, what's Twitter? You put, you know, you tweet uh, or Instagram, you post a picture of your lunch. You know, I don't get it. It's stupid. It makes no, there's no value. It's all silly. The fact that Snapchat is so easy, or at least was to dismiss as being this plaything is the very fact that makes me want to be like, I want to respect this thing because there's something here that people really like. And it always starts with low stakes things like playing around, being inappropriate, being funny, whatever else. Anyway, that's really cool. That, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I, I totally agree. And just to maybe start wrapping things up here a little bit, the, the credit goes to Snapchat. They've added a ton of features in the last like 12 to 14 months. And what it really you can attribute that to is them realizing that they were in a high leverage moment. So to, to me, that's something that I really resonate with is recognize those opportunities. Like people say, like opportunity doesn't come knocking that often. That's not really true. There's high leverage opportunities all the time. It's what you do with them. And Snapchat realized they had their high leverage moment. They were the hot new thing and they have just been pumping out new features. And, you know, I could probably talk to you for another 30, 40 minutes about the new features and the subtleties and the nuances of those. But you really they need to give you a those. commission, too. In addition to Francis. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. But the, but they but I could you could learn all about that and you can really get immersed in the platform. But it's 
added to how different Snapchat is as a platform compared to all these other ones. Like I literally, this this is a, a mild exaggeration, but if you were to go to your Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook app right now, open it up on your phone, guess what you could do? You could you put start your thumb at the bottom and drag it to the top and it would be a feed that moves by and it would be words and pictures. As different as they like to market themselves, this one's for business, this one's 140 characters, this one's pictures, it's still the same basic mechanism at, at the underlying it at the end of the day. Snapchat is something new and that more than anything else is what gets me excited because we need something new. We, we cannot get stuck in this this technology that that's relatively old by the digital age mm-hmm. uh, you know l- long term i know that it's completely irrelevant and this is all happening in such a micro amount of time but we need to be continuing to evolve the way we communicate digitally and not just resting on these laurels that aren't aren't perfect so i know we've got to wrap up can i ask can, can we have like five minutes on one more topic that i think is would be really interesting for something that both of us think about a lot Absolutely. You, you down with that? Hit me. All right, here we go. So, oh, first I gotta I gotta mention for my listeners because I'm gonna be posting this, and I know you are as well. We're gonna get double use out of this. Going deep with is where you can find Aaron. Um, the relationship between work and happiness. You mention on your blog and your bio that your parents are two of the hardest working people you know. And I found this with a lot of Praxis applicants, the best applicants who get accepted into the program who really have that grit and entrepreneurial mindset and they want to take charge of their lives, it's very, very common for their parents to be small business owners, for their parents to be sort of entrepreneurs, hardworking. Um, And, you know, obviously doing something like sports, competitive Frisbee, you've got to do a lot of hard work. But at the same time, you know, you're a part of groups like the end of jobs. You're, You're interested in the, you know, the... Um, tropical MBA sort of four hour work week type stuff. Like don't, don't make just work and nine to five and working for the man, your obsession. How do you, what is your view on the relationship between work and happiness? Do you feel like hard work is necessary for happiness and what forms can that take? Do you think leisure is undervalued, overvalued? I'm just curious of your sort of philosophy on work and happiness. So, my parents were not small business owners. They both uh, essentially work corporate jobs. But if you really look at that baby boomer generation that they fall squarely in the middle of, they just didn't really have this acceptance, this open mindedness, this information about the opportunities that entrepreneurship afforded them. Um, and I think that I'm just very, very blessed to even be uh, living in a time where, where all this is so possible. And for me, the relationship between work and, and leisure uh, really almost comes down to the fact that I genuinely love most of what I'm doing. So Ultimate Frisbee is a blinding passion. I'm almost actually coming down from the high a little bit because I would <laughs> say from my senior year of high school through age 23, that was the alpha and omega number one priority in in my life. Like if I'm if I'm being perfectly honest, and that's what it took to be really successful. But it also was fueled by a a violent passion for the game and for competing, getting out on the field, chasing down a disc. I am not good 
at working really hard for things that don't excite me, that don't interest me, that I can't see how they're either helping me grow or a way for me to give back to my community and help make it a better place. So my leisure is very, I would say, pretty far uh, far and few between. I do my podcast. I do the Ultimate Frisbee. I work with a software startup. There isn't a lot of downtime. And to me, even that downtime is what I almost see as those high leverage moments on a, on a micro level, on a week to week basis. That's my opportunity to go read the next business book that I have to track down or to get my exercise in or to um, do these other things that kind of improve me. And, and I like to think of it almost like a video game, like help me level up because I, I work from the assumption that there's a very strong chance that I'm going to live well into the double digits, if not the hundreds, just with the realities of the advances of modern medicine and the fact that I don't eat garbage. Um, so I I see this decade, my 20s, being the highest leverage of any of those years. When I'm 40, 50, 60, I'm going to take a whole lot more time to relax and putz around and leisure it up but right now is when I can really set the stage. So to, to get along to answering your question in a, in a shorter form, I'm not as attracted to leisure right now. The work makes me happy because it's work that I'm excited about, but I'm also really excited about the dividends that I'm confident are coming down the road. Yeah, I think there's this assumption that happiness is easy and unhappiness is hard and sort of hard work is associated with like drudgery and unhappiness and you know doing work you love is associated with easy and i actually think the opposite is more often the case to do things you love usually involves harder work but it's work that like you're willing to put in because you love it if you're a runner or an athlete you know it's not like oh i just love every minute of training for a marathon but it's that because you maybe love the feeling of running marathons, you're willing to work harder at it. Or even I watch my kids with video games. I mean, they are unhappy more than they're happy <laughs> playing a video game. Like if you just watch their face, I, I mean, I guess I wouldn't put it that way. They're they're happy in some sort of ultimate sense, but they don't look like they're having an easy time. They're working hard and they're frustrated because it's a challenge, but they're they're happy ultimately in doing this, which is what makes it worthwhile to push through. So for me, it's really about if I'm doing things I hate, there is no virtue in just being busy and working hard. There's no virtue in working hard at something that I truly get no fulfillment out of. I want to exit those situations as fast as possible. But if it's something I love, it's worth the pain. Pain and difficulty and hardship and work are worth it for something that you enjoy. And it's a a subtle difference, I think, to discuss, but it's kind of like you know it when you're doing it. You know when you watch your kid throwing that controller on the ground out of frustration and then picking it back up again, there's nowhere else they'd rather be. And you know that feeling when you're trying to hit that next milestone physically or, or mentally or in a business sense, but it's hard, you still wouldn't give it up. And that's, that's I think, that relationship between work and happiness for me. Uh, Aaron, this, is, this has been super fun. I feel like we could go on forever. I, I got such an education on Snapchat now. I'm actually looking you up right, trying to find you on Snapchat, and I haven't been able that's to figure the- out how to do it. So we'll have to solve that <laughs> later. So that's the other problem is discovery. That's a whole other can of worms for another conversation. Uh, I'm not going to let you go quite yet, Isaac. I end all of my episodes with my guests 
issuing a challenge to the audience. The idea being that challenging someone to do something in the next week or month, it can be super small, it can be bigger, that they can do, they can take the action, say, I did that, I accomplished that. And that is one small step in a positive direction for their personal or professional development. I know I'm kind of putting you on the oh, spot here, but, but the idea is something that you've done, if you want to share an anecdote associated with that, then we'll wrap up, um, that why you think that'll help folks kind of level up and take the next step. Oh man, I'm having, I'm, I'm struggling to pick between two different things. So I'm going to, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to be really quick with both. One is I am a huge advocate of blogging every day. The, the, the day that I challenged myself to blog every day for 30 days straight, and I've challenged so many people to do this and I've given them, I've sold them on why it's so valuable. And there's a million reasons and there's great articles out there. I've written some myself about why this will be valuable for you. Even if you're not a writer, even if you don't want to be popular on a blog, the value and everyone will agree with it and then they'll commit to it and almost nobody can do it. It's really hard, but it's transformational. So that's been huge for me when I did that the first time blog every day for 30 days. But here's the challenge that I am always trying to redo. And, and you can, let's, let's say a week, give yourself a week and try to write down every day, try to think of one or two things, write them down and then decide by the end of this week, I am going to remove one of these from my life. So come up with a list of things you hate, things that make you dead inside and make it your goal to remove one of those from your life by the end of that week. It can be social obligations. It can be something like, oh, I, you know, go to church every Sunday, even though I hate it. Or it can be, you know, I always have to talk on the phone to this person. Or sometimes it's like, you know, reading the comments on Facebook and getting angry and unhappy and like, okay, I'm just not going to do that anymore, period. I'm going to, I'm going to remove that from my life. It could be a job. It can be anything. But so try to try to come up with something that you hate that's making you unhappy and challenge yourself to do anything you can to remove that from your life within a week. And I do that regularly and uh, it gets harder and harder the more you remove because there's fewer and fewer things left <laughs> and they tend to be higher costs to get rid of. Um, but man, that's been transformational. I love it. That's a badass challenge and a great note to wrap up on, Isaac. Thank you so much for, uh, for recording this with me. Likewise, Aaron. If you're a fan of the show and want to help others find the Isaac Morehouse podcast, make sure you go to iTunes and leave a rating or a review. One rating goes a long way towards others finding the show.